0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week, we welcome back Tony Havocs. We're going to talk a little bit about surface protectants a topic that is right on top of all of our minds right now, especially those who are managing buildings. Before we get started, let's stop and thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can continue doing IAQ Radio Plus. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. The American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at iicrc.org and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at hb2021-america.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com Particles Plus at particlesplus.com. Grey Wolf Sensing Solutions at greywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc at TSI.com and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com.
0: And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to Zlotnick at CS.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Terry Sofer Sr., who was first to identify Dr. Kurt Seemers as the original owner of the ship that brought the fictional character Vito Andalini to the United States. The IQ radio trivia question for today, April 30, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here is today's trivia question. Unlike other types of product labels, what statement must appear on EPA-registered pesticide labels? Back to you, Joe. Thank
1: you, Cliff. All
0: right, so today
1: we're going to discuss some recent work Tony Havix has done on antimicrobial surface protectants uh, in conjunction with a client who provides integrated facility services to more than 600 customers. Tony is an honors graduate from the Georgia Institute of Technology. His bachelor's degree is in mechanical engineering. He's a registered professional environmental engineer With over 25 years of experience in the industry, he's also a CIH and has volunteered on numerous AIHA and other committees, and he's also our IAQ radio go-to guy for industrial hygiene and related topics. Welcome back, Tony. Good to be back, Joe. Good to be back. Always great to have you, sir. Hey, what we'd like to do is first... um, I want to set this up a little with Cliff, but before we do that, can you tell listeners a little bit about what led to the uh, development of this paper?
2: Yeah, so I was hired by uh, Cushman and Wakefield Services, and they had uh, over a thousand clients across the U.S. that they were doing work for in terms of their cleaning protocols, as well as their um, general overall uh, management uh, for the buildings. And they kept on getting calls about what they should do with these these potential surface protectants that were being offered to them, and so they came to me and said, "Can you uh, take a look at the science behind them and help us uh, fit into them uh, groupings and, and ratings so we could decide which ones we might recommend and which ones we might not recommend, and and what for and what what they what, what they couldn't be used for?"
1: You know, it's interesting because there's a lot of confusion around this topic. You know what what has to be registered, what doesn't have to be registered, what's exempted, and so on. And my co-host, the Z-Man, has been dealing with this for many years, and I thought we'd go into a little background with him, kind of set things up. First, starting with uh, FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, uh, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. Cliff, what is a pest? I mean, it, FIFRA regulates pests. What it's is a good a pest? question.
0: Well, according to FIFRA, a pest uh, broadly includes any insect, rodent, nematode, fungus, weed, or virus, or bacteria, or other microorganism on man or in other living organisms. That's that's their definition. It's, it's pretty broad. And I think uh, if we go off on FIFRA, what FIFRA is, is the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. And EPA kind of uh, handles that both with uh, product registrations and also so on the uh, enforcement side, so it's FIFRA that regulates uh, registration, distribution, and sale of these products, you know, in the United States. Um, I, I think the the next question, one that's most important, is we talked about what is a pest, and I think the next logical question is what's a pesticide. And you know, with certain exceptions, a pesticide is any substance or mixture of substances intended for preventing, destroying, repelling, mitigating any pest or intended use as a plant regulator, defoliant, desiccant, or any nitrogen stabilizer. And I know a lot of people in water damage, when they hear desiccant, they get all excited. But uh, they have pesticide desiccants normally applied as dusts. And what they do is if an insect comes in contact with them, they kind of dry the insect out. So uh, that's kind of how those those things would work.
1: Now, lately with COVID, we've heard a lot about this treated article exemption. I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about that.
0: I'll give you the background and then we'll go into that. So what FIFRA does is they require the registration of any substance intended to prevent, destroy, repel, or mitigate a pest. However, the Code of Federal Regulations has an exemption. And this is called the Treated Article Exemption. And this prescribes the conditions under which this exemption applies. And it allows certain... Uh, materials and items to be registered as treated articles. So what a treated article is, is an article or substance treated with or containing a pesticide. And that purpose of the pesticide is to protect the article or substance itself. You know, for example, paints might contain uh, an, an antimicrobial to preserve the product while it's in the can so it doesn't smell and also to maybe provide some antifungal protection, you know, once the product uh, is applied. Uh, wood products are exempted actually from, uh, from, from, from treated articles. Hmm. Okay, the, the claims on these products are, are quite limited. Uh, you're limited to making a statement like this product contains a preservative, for example, fungicide or insecticide built in or applied as a coating, only to protect the product. And an example of a legal claim would be antimicrobial products, properties are built in to inhibit the growth of bacteria that may affect this product. Um, Oftentimes, I also have to say, the antimicrobial properties do not protect users or others against Bacteria, viruses, germs, or other disease-causing organisms. Always clean and wash this product thoroughly before and after each use. So that might be something like a cutting board or, or something like that. Okay. All right. And what about... Um, um, go ahead.
1: Um, go ahead. Uh, well, what, what about viruses? They, they fall into this? Uh, they is that part of the... Exemption? I'm not sure I understand that part. I don't think
0: the, I don't think the I don't think this was ever considered before, really, before COVID, and I think COVID set off a whole you know chain of events that were somewhat unusual. Uh, and I think one of the things that happened with COVID was the this marketing. Uh, no one had a. You have to understand, COVID was a novel virus, right? We never had it before. So we never had that virus to test in a laboratory to determine if the existing products would work against it. However, when we had the novel virus, everyone wanted to get samples of this novel virus to get it into a lab so that they could test on it. They could prove their product would work. And uh, you know, the government, uh, what, what the government did, I think, was smart. You know, what they did was there were three. There were initially two ways. Uh, to get your product approved. The first was to demonstrate your product was effective against a pathogen that is harder to kill than SARS-CoV-2. I mean, that makes sense. If it'll kill something more difficult to kill, it should work on that. The second was to demonstrate efficacy against a different coronavirus similar to COVID also makes sense. And the third one is to actually have data against COVID. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Lysol was the first company that actually had the first uh, legal claim against it. Interesting. Okay. All
1: right. So is there any other background we need to cover here, Cliff, before we move over and, and discuss the paper Tony's working on? I don't think so at this point. All right. Tony, any comments on what Cliff just went through?
2: I think Cliff gave a pretty good background on on the regulatory actions and and probably the only thing that I would add is you know when they do get your registration there's a label that comes with the registration you have to follow the label instructions but there's a lot of information on that label too about what's actually been claimed and supported enough for them to make the claim in the first place so if they're talking about killing mold versus killing bacteria they have to actually have the lab data to show each of those, which goes back to the virus issue, um, there actually was. Um, I, know, I know of one product that actually uh, had some virus kill issue, both for SARS, the original SARS CoV one, uh, back in two thousand four, um, uh, two thousand three, two thousand four, and then one that actually had some feline viruses, which was a common one to actually use. But for the you know for the SARS CoV two, which is COVID nineteen agent, yeah, no, nobody nobody saw it coming in terms of. Uh, the high need that we were going to have for this based off of what had happened with H1N1, as well as with uh, SARS-CoV-1, which mainly stayed over in Asia actually, and maybe a little bit into Canada.
1: Okay. I think another topic, Tony,
2: we should cover kind of as the background is just what is a log reduction? Uh, Yeah. So you, you could think of a log reduction as for every log number, log one, two, three, put another nine into the, into the number. So a log one is a 90% reduction. A log two is a 99%. A log three is a 99.9 and a log four is 99.99. And for those, it depends upon the regulation and the agency that gives you um, some of the uh, descriptions of what those need to be. It could be anywhere between a two log and a six log reduction that you would need to have. Uh depending upon what the use is and what and what you plan on intending to use it for, okay now what about let's talk a little bit about the
1: categories of these products. Can you give listeners a little more of an idea of what categories we're talking about surface protectants, but I think there's many ways there's at least a few ways to protect surfaces
2: yeah so let, let's let's first talk about the idea that you you clean and disinfect. And cleaning first and then disinfect. Most people, when you're looking at disinfect, you're looking for a very uh, high kill rate, uh, short time period. And that's what most people think about when you're putting something on the surface for a protectant. You're really looking for two weeks, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, two years out. You're looking for a much longer time period of effectiveness. Now not the same level of effectiveness, but you're looking for a longer time period of effectiveness for the purposes of the agents that I looked at, which, Started out of seven, I added six to them, and then uh, uh, CNW came back and added another two. So I ended up with about fifteen different agents that I tried grouping. And within side of that, you could say there's a group that fits into the zero to thirty days, a group that fits into the thirty to ninety days, and then there's a, like a ninety plus day uh, grouping uh, based off of generally the efficacy and how it's intended to be implied and how the labeling is actually set up. So you can group them in terms of how long they're intended to kind of last and give some level of efficacy. And then you can also group them by whether they're a liquid uh, or whether they're a solid um, or whether they're actually a solid that's, that's, that's put in place uh, as a sheet or something like that over, over a surface um, uh, or something like copper. Uh, there's also some polymer-based films that I'll talk about here shortly. Uh, and, and those would be a, a, a solid type as opposed to a liquid spray. You can also group them by how they get applied, whether you can paint them on, roll them on, or whether you have to electrostatically spray them, how, you know, how the application would be. So they do have some different ways of, of actually looking at, you know, h- how you might want to group them. And then lastly, you look at what's the, what's the mechanism that they work by. So some of these, you know, work um, essentially uh, by the, the chemical aspects. Some of them work by more of a physical aspect. Uh, of how they actually limit the 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 growth of the transfer of of, uh, of these biological agents. I find that uh, interesting.
1: I think we'll go into that in a little more detail uh, later in, in the interview here, but I find that very interesting. I have a quick question. I, we're all familiar with these claims on, you know, bathtubs or, you know, the dehumidifiers the guys use, and either one of you can jump in on this. What What do we have there? Again, it's something that's Saying that it's uh, got this protection to keep things from growing on that surface, and and how are those applied?
0: It can either be built in, like they, for instance, they have additives uh, that are added to the, you know, to the plastics. And triclosan uh, is a very very common one. Uh, you know, all the microband products. That was uh, the original patent was adding triclosan to plastics. And then they have some that could be sprayed on uh, and they do that in certain times with textiles and things like that, where it could be a spray on or a dip treatment. And Tony may have some things to add to that as well. Tony.
2: Yeah. So, you know, as Cliff mentioned, you can actually build some of these antimicrobials into the product material as, as you're doing it, whether that's a plastic or whether that's even a textile, uh, it could be, it could be put onto the the fibers or sprayed on afterwards. Um, and they, they, they have various ways of doing that as well, and that's where actually a lot of the money is as over the years has been putting them on products for for product usage, not for application on surfaces in an office or in a hospital or something like that. Gotcha. What I'm going to be talking about mostly is going to be um, the ones that are applied after product production. So they they're not they're after you get a product, a desk, you know carpet, walls, uh, elevator knobs. Those are all have already been installed, and you're looking to put a coating on or some type of protective to minimize the the amount of uh, uh, microbial growth, uh, the microbial uh, actual deposition onto those surfaces as well.
3: Okay,
1: let's talk a little bit about um, the depth of the research you performed here, and 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 get a little more background on that, Tony. Tell tell listeners a little bit more about what you
2: set out to do here and what the final product looks like? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of things that you can evaluate and there's a, there's a lot of work that can be done. One of the one of the big things I did is I looked at, of course, all of the registrations, EPA registration, because there's a lot of data in, in the label and the registration information if it's available. Now, some of these products don't need a registration, uh, as, as Cliff pointed out at the beginning, if you've got a particular article uh, that, that can be exempt from that then you don't actually need to do the EPA registration uh, for that. So EPA registration was a key point, uh, pulling up information, both publicly available and published reports, going to the CEOs, the chemists of a lot of these products, and actually uh, getting on the phone with them and uh, putting them down with questions and trying to get some unpublished data, which of course obviously ends up with some, some NDAs to, to make sure that certain things can't be disclosed. Um mm-hmm and reviewing uh, more of the detail, uh, the laboratory data, the field data, which is also just, you know, to me, the field data is more important than lab data. Everything does great in the, in, in the lab. You can make anything look good in the lab if you, if you set it up right. Question is, is how does it, how does it actually perform out in the real world? Um, and, and at what level does it perform out in the real world? So I wanted to take a look at um, uh, taking along those same steps. Uh, what's, what's the lab data? What's the field data? And even if it performs on the prevention side of things with regard to, of, uh, you know, whether it's mold, whether it's a virus, whether it's a bacteria, then the next question becomes is, does it actually stop disease? Does it stop the transfer? You have that next step of what we might say hospital acquired infections, which is one thing that gets tracked as well. So I went through a, a very long process of pulling up all the information I could, you know, several hundred references, at least 200 hours of my time put into this going through the products, uh, talking with people and trying to get a very good in-depth view of not just their products, but the overall general classifications and how they operate. So that I had the right questions to ask to make sure I knew, you know, what, what were those products going to do when you put them in when you actually made use of them? And could they be used in the same ways? So there's products out there, um, for instance, that the, the application is only electrostatic, which limits your ability to do things with it. So I wanted to look at what, what are the applications available as well. And there's a number of them that you can't use in an HVAC system. If your label doesn't say you can use it in an HVAC system, don't use it in an HVAC system because that is a, a, a violation. So are, a lot are of are background work.
1: Are there any that you can use in an HVAC system?
2: Yeah, there's, there are about there's, four. there's
0: codings, yeah.
2: Yeah, there, there's there's probably about four or five of these coatings that, that are, are 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 stated for using an HVAC system. Now you would have to be, you would still have to apply it per the per the label. And there are some things that you would want to make sure you don't do. Like I'm probably not going to put them on the coils uh, uh, of an HVAC <laughs> unit. <laughs> I mean, you, you, it might might work for a short time, but you're going to cause some issues with right. regard to efficiency. You may actually you, you may cause some other issues as well with them. So. They're not, they're not, not like you can just throw them anywhere you want. Um, and we could talk about some of the other properties that you have to look at with regard to some of these, these products, which consideration, which I did not look at. Um, I, I was more looking at um, they're going to use them. What are they going to use them for? Uh, I wasn't necessarily looking at some of the material properties and how they affect other things other than more the efficacy, the safety aspects. Can a person use it safely? Can they apply it safely and how well is it going to work?
1: And how do they work, Tony? There's a, there's a few ways they work. Maybe we could review that now.
2: Yeah, so let, let me talk first about how you might group them. Um, so the biggest grouping is what would be called psiquats. So um, those who are familiar with quaternary ammonium compounds, essentially what they've done is they've taken a quaternary ammonium po- compound, a quad, and they've bound it to a, a silane chain. And so if you, if you think about something like a silicon and then taking the the chemical of the quat portion of it binding it to the surface so that it's available for the uh, to the surface to actually cause uh damage to an organism most of these have really only been tested on bacteria um specific types of bacteria in general as well as uh yeah some of them have been tested against uh particular fungi um but the quats in general um you know they have their effectiveness, and it's one of essentially three ways. Um, if you were to look at the, the data that's out there, there's a lot of companies like to say it's it's a it's a sword, and it jabs into the into the into the so, bacteria and kills it. Well there's some truth to that um, and, and, and in essence, what that really means is the shape of the molecule itself allows it to stick out and go into uh, and disrupt the, the, the cell surface, the outer layer of whatever it is, maybe a bacteria or maybe, maybe a fungus. And that, that's one mechanism, but that does, it can't be, can't explain everything. And so you'd have to go to a second uh, mechanism, which those also function off of, which is an ion exchange mechanism, which causes some, some charge issues, which then disrupt the molecules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a phospho, phospholipid sponge effect that also creates some, some damage to um, Uh, to some of these organisms. Now, those are three different mechanisms. They all kind of work for the Psyquats and probably at different levels based off of all the published evidence and some of the unpublished stuff that I'm aware of. So functionally, they have a, you know, a somewhat chemical physical aspect, a very much a charge aspect, and then a very much a chemical aspect for the Psyquats. But if you go into the metal ones, you know, like, like copper or um, silver, you know, they actually, you know, the copper is known for releasing copper ions or having the copper available there and, and then um, actually um, generating a reactive, reactive oxygen species, which then disrupts the, the, the cellular process and then causes the, the cell to actually die. So mm-hmm. that's a different type of, of functionality. The silver actually does it by, by binding with some of the sulfur components of, of, the, of the cell walls itself which then actually disrupt and eventually kill it. So those actually have different functionary ways of, of actually working. And then if you want to look at, uh, you know, photocatalytic oxidation, uh, these, these uh, films that you can put over surfaces, those typically have a titanium dioxide layer. That t- titanium dioxide layer with uh, UV light, uh, high light source, then produces a, a reactive oxygen species that can that can actually then react with the, the, the organism and eventually kill the organism. Now, there's there's some, obviously some limitations to what it can do uh, and whether or not that's been proven on, for, for field usage as well. Then there's these physical structure materials, which are actually designed to do a couple of things. One is don't let the organism attach to the surface in the, in the first place, which means that if you're going to have something on there, it doesn't get on there in the first place. And then it's not available for transfer. It's also not available for growth and then limit the, the actual biofilm growth potential over time by not allowing it to actually uh, spread itself out and, and and multiply. And those physically structured ones are are kind of interesting. And actually, Joe, let let me, um, let me do a screen share here for a second. Yeah, that's a great Uh, idea. I think that'll help. And, um, and I, let me go back first to what Cliff had already talked about with susceptibility of these organisms to disinfectants. And, and you notice that you know, these bacterial spores, Bacillus subtilis, uh, Bacillus magitarium, spore formers are the toughest to kill up at the top. Then your mycobacteria, your non-enveloped viruses, your fungi, your bacteria, and then your enveloped viruses, which is where uh, SARS-CoV-2 lies. And so those are actually the easiest to kill. And so when, when Cliff talked about if you can kill the spore formers, and you can kill the fungi and the gram-negative bacteria. You should have no problem with the viruses. And that was pretty much the, one of the mechanisms behind making those choices that EPA actually went ahead and made. Um, these quaternary ammonium compounds... You know, there, there's, there's a basically a, a positive uh, nitrogen sitting in there, and, and some of this charge effect is what actually helps with the antimicrobial aspect of it. And that can be attached onto a, a, um, a silane and kept on the surface so that when the material touches the surface, this organism touches the surface, it's a contact kill. Now, it's important to re- recognize that that contact kill is very important in terms of the spacing. It's literally got to touch it. It's got to physically touch it, and just a small amount will make a difference, and I'll, I can talk about that in a little while. Um, in terms of the, you know, the, the contact killing, this is the example of the swords. If it's, you know, a nice flat biocide up here, it can't enter into the cell wall, versus if it's, if it's immobilized and has some space in between it, it can get further into the cell wall and be able to actually um, do, some, do some damage. And then, if you look at the at the, the sponge effect, you can actually have some effect of this uh, anion cation uh, back and forth aspect to be able to to disrupt the cell wall itself. So those are those are the two ways that I mentioned previously, and then the physical way. So this is um, this is a uh, scanning electron micrograph that I took um, of a sharklet, and a sharklet's a trade name for a material that basically is a particular imprinted pattern based off of what's on the surface of a shark. And this surface material is such that it, it, it does not allow bacteria to actually adhere to it very well. And in addition to producing coefficient of drag, but it also doesn't allow it to grow very well. And this actually, this particular material here, not only has some laboratory testing of that nature, it has field testing and has shown that if you use it on certain surfaces, you decrease the number of hospital acquired infections. So this would be a, a physical mechanism. And, and Joe, you'd asked earlier uh, about the whole idea of bending. This is an uneven surface. And if you took a bacteria of the right size, and you can see my scale bar down here, 10 micrometers, you took a bacteria of the right size, it, if, it, if it folds in there and gets any little pressure against it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to distort across the surface and bend it and create perhaps enough pressure uh, enough um, compression and tension, tension, actually compression is probably not going to do anything to the cell wall, but the, the tension aspect is actually going to fracture portion of the cell wall or open it up for, uh, for uh, attack by, by something else. And so that's the stress aspect of this. Again, it's, it's, it's probably the, the third one that's on here in terms of how this mechanism actually, how this particular property uh, works. It's really not allowing it to stick and not allowing it to transfer that actually the this particular physical-based pattern works. Um, and so you've got the contact kill. You may have a leachability surface, which they no longer use these because they don't want silver and copper and other things leaching out. And then you've got perhaps a surface that repels. So you can actually take some of those psyquats and make them hydrophobic or hydrophilic. And therefore, you can actually, you know, make use of them in, in, in other ways, but you can also repel the surface in general. And then with that sharklet surface, you can repel the actual uh, deposition of the bacteria to begin with. So multifunctionary ways, and not all of them are the same, and a lot of the work that's been done has been done on bacteria, not necessarily on viruses and, 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 and there's probably only been a, a lesser amount on on the fungi themselves.
0: I do have a follow-up question in regard to the titanium dioxide uh, products and, and, and so on and so forth. I'm sure that you're familiar that when they first came out, I think it may have come from Japan, and they were using this technology on the outside of buildings, and they were saying that it would help uh, buildings remain clean um have you done any research or um can you comment on that
2: yeah actually i was wanting to call up a colleague of mine because they did a nice study where they took the outside of the building and they coated a half of it and they, unco- they left the other half coated and after a few years you can actually see the color difference where the growth was on one side and, and there was no growth on, on on the other side and and so from that aspect yeah it's pretty pretty dramatic on the outside um you can you can reduce the the growth on the outside and also make it a, a pre-washing where it actually, as the rain comes down, it'll help wash the surface off mm-hmm. and you get some additional benefits because you actually get some, some moisture kept off of the surface because uh, a lot of those organisms, particularly the algae will hold the moisture in there. And when you hold that moisture mm-hmm. into the the building wall, you actually increase I um, should say you decrease the, the resistivity of that material. And so you get a lot of heat, cold loss or heat loss actually no such thing as cold loss uh heat loss back and forth which means you lose energy and you can actually if you use some of these coatings you'll get a radiative uh, response difference and you'll get an energy gain in terms of the amount of energy you don't have to use to, to heat and cool the building just because of uh resisting that moisture penetration very interesting <laughs> i think we're going to go to halftime
0: our marquee sponsor instascope more jobs done faster.
1: With the future of IAQ assessment technology, unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org. ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety. Interested in defining their science at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at hb2021-america.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus feature-rich particle counters, and air quality instrumentation, count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at GraywolfSensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers
0: at HealthyIndoors.com. Okay. Uh, Tony, let's talk about some of the material properties. Uh, it, it, you know, you looked at a really Diverse group of, of different materials. And, you know, in certain situations, uh, that the deciding factor may be based on a combination of efficacy and performance and some type of uh, specific uh, material property. So, if you could speak on that, I'd appreciate it.
2: Yeah, so so for the most part a lot of these were liquid coatings and the rest were solids that you would apply to a surface or were solids themselves. Obviously the the solids um have a better wear capacity um and so they'll they'll last better, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the efficacy off of it because that wear may actually mean getting rid of the surface that you want. That's not the case with the copper material because you keep on replenishing the copper because of the way it's 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 embedded in the in into the material. There's a number of things that I did not that I looked at, but I didn't actually do rankings or or or, or, or um, true evaluation. I kept them in the back of my head. But there are some properties that are important to look at that I did not look at when I graded these materials. Uh, so, what are the acoustics of once you apply it to it? What's the uh, resistivity value if you're putting it on a wall? Uh, how long does it last in terms of uh, uh, wear resistance? Um, what's the flame spread smoke development because you're putting these on a variety of different surfaces and if something happens you don't want it to actually um, cause you more harm than good Mm -hmm. Um, you know what's what's the heat aging with load most of these fortunately are are designed to be applied inside as opposed to being outside Uh, one of the coatings uh, is actually a paint Um, it it actually can be applied outside and has very good kill capacity but uh, other than that most of them are intended to be used inside and as such you know their their wear capacity uh is also limited so you don't expect them to be sitting around for uh, two years later um they will wear it down and they will uh they'll actually get um uh they'll actually get dust and debris on them which is a which is a big issue and cliff you know you and i have talked about this you know what's what's the what's the benefit of having one of these things. And if you, if you get something on the surface of it, I'm going to go ahead and share it, do a little screen share again here, because I think it's important to, to take a look at. Um, yeah. One of the things that I did look at and uh, Jonathan, if you want to take my video, my um, video off and just leave the audio. Um, I, yeah, I have here uh, an image of uh, what's called a polycarbonate filter that we use for air sampling, and these little round circles that you're actually seeing in here uh, are holes through this polycarbonate filter, and there's a starch grain on one and there's a there's a there's actually a rat hair on one and a, and a um, uh, hair hair from an underside of a leaf on this one. So this is on a typical uh, polycarbonate filter. Here we have um, a dextrin grain, which happens to have come out of a frozen beer. So when you freeze your beer and uh, the dextrin comes out of it and that's what it makes it taste all nasty and gritty. But just to give you a, a, a size of those little bitty grains compared to the size of the holes of the polycarbonate filter, they're 10 micrometers wide. And then here we have an image of a diatom with that hole over to the left. And you can see right through that hole, the thickness of this filter is actually 10 micrometers. And there was a wonderful study done that showed that if you use a polycarbonate filter like this and put bacteria on top of it, the underlying uh, protective coating does nothing. It does not kill the bacteria. It needs a contact surface. It really does need that contact in order to kill it. It's not just going to you know, exude some vapor and, and actually do something that's going to actually prevent that uh, bacteria from both living and growing. How many
0: of the different coatings that you looked at had the capability to be
2: self-cleaning? Let's, let's, let's define self-cleaning, Joe. <laughs> uh, Cliff, you know, one of the two, we talked about this, um, you know, how, how self-cleaning. Um, you can't self-clean these coatings unless they're on the side of an exterior of a building where you get to wash them all the time. Okay. Uh, you still, with these coatings, you still have to clean. You can't just put them on there and expect them to continue working as I just uh, d- uh, showed right there. 10 micrometer worth of dust, which is pretty much nothing. That doesn't take very much. Mm-hmm. Once that dust gets on there, it prohibits the, the coating from actually doing its job. And so if you get any significant amount of dust deposit on there, it needs to be cleaned off. And that happens on a regular basis, um, which is one of the reasons I have issues with um, the photocatalytic oxidation devices in general. Uh, as soon as you get dust on them, they're not going to operate well. You need that surface contact. You need that reactionary aspect. If it doesn't get it, you're not gonna. It's not gonna be very usable. So, keeping the surfaces cleaned even after you've applied a uh, a coating is important. Um, you'll get some some pretty good um, you know efficacy if you don't have a lot of d- dust and debris settling on it. And some of the field studies I looked at with some of these, uh, you know, after 90 days, you're gonna get uh, you, know, you have about 40 uh, percent reduction versus not treating the area, maybe a 60% reduction in some, in some places. So it's not the log three kill of 99.99. It's less than one log. It's not even 90%. You know, typically these, these long-term product, longer term products in the uh, 30 to to 90 day usage, are only going to give you a 40 to 60% reduction uh, in, in, usually bacteria. And it's typically measured by ATP. A lot of times they haven't done it with regard to actual bacteria or fungal growth. The exception to that actually is microban, which I'm going to name as a product that's been out there the longest. It's got the most history with something. Um, And it actually does, uh, it's done pretty well over 60 month periods. Uh, A lot of these other ones, when they're actually tested, if you read the fine print, they reapplied it every 30 or days or 90 days. And so it's not like it's going to last a year. They reapplied it every 90 days for a year. And that's why it worked is because they were doing a reapplication. And then, and if you're using it in a hospital, which is where a lot of the studies come from, you're cleaning the surfaces, whether that's a typical clean or a terminal clean, you're going to be cleaning the surfaces on a regular basis. And if you don't, you're going to build up that, that, that dust level or debris level and they're not going to have that contact kill capacity on that surface. So it's very important to recognize that you got to clean the surfaces. You can't just put them down and leave them there and think, oh, I don't have to worry about it. You know, one of the things that, that that I thought
0: was that with all the hoopla about going in and spraying all these disinfectants and, you know, the, the electrostatic spraying, and you know, these buildings top to bottom and so on and so forth, Uh, there was really nothing left after the dwell time of the product, after the product dries, you know, there was no lingering protection whatsoever. And, and I do think that, uh, you know, I I support the use of these products because I do think that they provide some sort uh, of protection, you know, maybe less than a log, but something is, you know, something is better than nothing. And at least, you know, the customer gets, gets something, other than dwell time, uh, you know, in terms of efficacy.
2: Yeah, well, there's an assumption that you got the dwell time to begin with, which has been an issue, in, I think, right. in the industry in general, that they haven't allowed proper dwell time. There's also the, um, you know, you, you mentioned it, you know, they evaporate pretty quickly, but if you actually look at the, the dispersion of it across the surface, unless you get the right distance away from the surface when you're doing electrostatic, you're not going to get enough coverage to begin with anyway, and, and after they leave. Yeah. They hold a place in that they're not, they're not a panacea. They're an incremental improvement you know, they're not fabulous, but they're incremental. And the question is, is do you want a little bit of more uh, rather than regular and, and in a hospital, it could be beneficial to do that. Um, And so the question is, is, does it make sense on a, um, on an economic basis uh, does it make sense on making sure that if you're the one in that building and you're, you're offering a high class building in a class, a space and they want to have it at a certain level, do you, does it make sense to do that? Because that's what the expectation is. Um, so there, there are, you know, there, there's a level of grades. It, it's a continuum. And the question is, is where do you want to lie on that continuum with regard to both risk and presentation of what you are doing for, uh, to, to maintain the space in a, in a healthy condition, that does depend upon risk. A lot of these work really well because if you you're testing them in a hospital, that's a high risk area. It's easy to show a difference in a high risk area than it is in a lower risk area. Um, you know, I, I've done the numbers, and if you look at it, you know, you think about it, you know, with the cases, you know, there's there's a one in a thousand chance of uh, there was about at the peak, I think we were at six people in a thousand had 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 the virus. So you know, your chances of actually Having uh, a significant need for it, unless if you particularly if you're spaced out in an office, probably isn't there. Now, there's other benefits to these cliffs that uh, you and I have talked about. You know, reduction of MRSA, you mm-hmm. know, reduction of of, of uh, some of these um, viruses uh, that that are very surface contact issues. And so, there's benefits on the, that side as well that nobody's talking about because everybody's focusing on SARS-CoV-2. So, yeah, there's there's um, there's things that you can you you can do with regard to that. You know, Ed Light in, in the uh, in his little chat here has has posted an idea. You know, what about the the soil loading and the testing for EPA? Well, the typical testing um, may or may not include the the adding of a particular mix to, to mimic some type of. Uh, uh, fluid, uh, not necessarily soil, but typically some type of inhibitor to keep you from being able to kill the organism to begin with. And that may be um, some type of broth that they would put in there or blood, uh, yeah. uh, the blood or something like that, just to keep you during the testing process. Soil is typically not done because soil is really good at preventing it from working. Um, yeah. You'd have to go, you have to go to a disinfectant for it to actually work. And so from that standpoint, you have to match the testing to the field, which is why, I, as I say, go to the field test. Does it work in the field? It can work in the lab pretty well, but does it actually work in the real world where, you, where you're actually trying to apply it? So what are the big take-homes here, Tony, from this? And then
1: if we get a chance, folks, we will jump into some of these other questions.
2: So if you look at the criteria that I, that I set aside, you have the different things that Cliff and I have both talked about. Is it EPA-registered? What's the effect of time? Do you have the field studies? Do you have the application, and do you have the technical expertise? You know, beyond that, you have to ask yourself, you know, um, what's the maximum time period I could use it? And as a take home, I'd have to say, you know, there is no silver bullet. There's no on-spiring antimicrobial that's going to do it. Um, you're going to get probably a forty to sixty percent reduction if you're looking for like a ninety day add on, and if not you're 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 really only getting um you're not getting what you, you're getting something less than what you expect so don't expect it to be something fabulous expect it to be an add-on a little incremental in, uh movement towards reducing the the bio burden the the overall bio burden itself
1: all right that's what do you think let's go to the roundup, cliff you got it <laughs> All right, Tony, i got a, a text question here that's kind of long, but I think um, maybe I'll just go to the end. Did, did IAQ considerations enter into your evaluation or your recommendations?
2: Um, so there are some safety considerations that, that are quasi-IAQ that, that went into the consider considerations. And uh, Joe, I don't know if whether you posted the, the link to the actual public version of what was in oh, we my report. Not- I'll, I'll put yet, it in the, in the blog ad, okay. and on the website.
0: I just, wasn't sure if I was permitted to do
2: it. So <laughs> yeah, well, the public, the public version you could talk about Okay, the, the, no problem. Understood. <laughs> the non-public. No, Understood. Um, and, and there's some criteria in there. And, and if you want to look at that, there's actually a criteria on safety health and then application side that went into that. However, I did not look at things like, um, uh, you know, odor issues that might be associated with the product. You know, if you're looking for reducing long term odor issues, um, you may have some you may have some things to to deal with with regard to that. I also um, didn't necessarily consider somebody who might be copper sensitized to the surfaces. And so if you've got a copper surface, they may very well react to the copper surface just because they react to copper in general. Um, I took a look at that, but it didn't play a big factor in terms of of how I rank them. Uh, I do have some data on it, but I I just didn't, it didn't fall into the ranking scheme that uh, I was looking to to do for the client at the time.
1: All right, Cliff, final questions?
2: Uh, go ahead, you you
0: and Pete.
1: Well, let's go, go to Pete. Pete. The Restoration Industry Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Pete, questions for our guest today, Tony Havoc.
3: Well, it's not so much a questions. I just think that uh, the topic obviously is important and timely. <clears throat> you know, not just in light of all the business with the COVID, but I mean, um, you know, this has been an issue that, uh, you know, Cliff and myself and many others in the industry have talked about for a long time. And, uh, I think that, uh, it's just a, I don't know misunderstanding, I guess, of the proper use and application of these different products. And too often, um, you know, uh, the suppliers get involved in different, you know, different distributors of these products and they, they make it a, you know, they, they kind of get involved in, uh, you know, uh, about the special interests of a particular product. And I, I would think, you know, as an industry, we need to to, to get above that. We need to deal with, with uh, you know, understanding the law, you know, the real consequences of uh, using, uh, not using these products. Products properly and not using the right product—it has big implications. And I guess if I added anything to this, Joe and Tony, you know, we talked a little bit about this, you know, before we went live. But um, one of the things—I mean, the lessons that should be learned—you know—I I noticed in just looking at the all the people that called in today—and thanks a lot for everyone that called in. That we got a wide range of people from restoration and we got the industrial hygienist type and um, we got the you know some of the old guys who've been around for a long time we got some of the younger restorers on there you know and uh, crossover people like uh, William Coleman from the flooring industry and all these kind of things so th- th- this is an important topic but I, I remember specifically in the 90s one of the lessons that was learned is that in the very early 90s when the industries first started to put some standards together We really didn't have our arms around this issue. And um, then in the late 90s, when the second uh, uh, IICRC S-500 document came out, which uh, was written in an ANSI style, meaning in a format, but we hadn't got the ANSI yet, that didn't happen until the third edition several years later. And uh, it had a much broader inclusion of people that were involved in that process, including some on this call from multiple industries, but something that uh, was uh, very unique and special in that document was, was in the appendix, was a 14 page appendix. And it was a, it was a legal opinion on the FIFRA laws by Mark Hansen, who was the attorney for the IICRC and really a wonderful man to work with all those years that he was involved in a lot of the committee work. He really brought logic and, uh, to, you know, to a lot of this. He wrote a 14-page document and explained to the industry what FIFR was, the importance of it. But to this day, 20-plus years later, I still remember his conclusion at the end of the 14 pages. And it was a short paragraph, but I very specifically remember this, Mr. Zlotnick, and I know it will go into the blog. He said, It's important for the industry to be in compliance with the FIFRA law because violation of the FIFRA not only has the health implications and legal and liability implications said, but it's a violation which could bring uh, criminal charges, to paraphrase. And the difference between a civil action, as many of you know, even though we're not lawyers, but we get involved in contracts and dealing with this, is a civil action has financial penalties. Criminal action can have financial penalties and also you can go to jail. And so that was 20 some odd years ago that that was in our industry standard as an appendix by the lawyer who represented our industry standards organization. He said, you guys need to pay attention to this because not only is it the right thing to do, it could have, you could violate it. It could have criminal criminal penalties. So... Here we are all these years later and still talking about it and I guess we'll continue to talk about it (laughs) because it's, because it's important. Yep. And uh, anyway, you know, and so as far as that's concerned, Tony, uh, I really appreciate the wonderful work you've done on, on our shows.
1: Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Pete. Hey, Tony, before we go, and This ties in a little bit to the questions. There's other variables. I don't know if you've got the chance to talk about, but I, I, I lost my internet there for a while. But Things like material properties, um, acoustics, R-value, and how these products affect flame spread, smoke development, you know, toxicity. Um, how removable are they? Do they leach? And tying into what Ed Light put in the uh, text box here. What about in the presence of water? What happens to these? Now, obviously, we can't cover all that right now, but I wonder if you maybe have some overview of uh, what you learned about those different topics during this process.
0: We covered a lot of it, Joe, when, when you it, were off. Yeah. Good. Okay. But, okay.
2: It, yeah, we, we did cover a lot of it. I mean, the, probably the bottom line is nobody's looking at it right now. Um, I mean, I've looked a little bit, but most people are not looking at it uh, with regard to the processes. Um, you know, Ed had put it in the chat with regard to, you know, what does water do to some of these surfaces? It depends. And he mentioned that Microband calls itself self-cleaning. It might be self-cleaning if you put it on the exterior of a building and let it rain on it, but it's not really self-cleaning. Um, I would point out that um, there is a concern that with the use of chemicals, that you're building up chemical resistance to certain um, uh, your, your, building certain uh, resistant um, organisms by selectively removing certain ones and allowing other ones to grow. And that's still being studied, although it doesn't appear to be as as bad as most people think. Um, And then one last thing is that AIHA has a cleaning and disinfection guide. Um, that's made for the healthcare industry. It's got a pretty good background. Um, The next go around, um, I volunteered to add some of this information into that document which will hopefully be updated in, in, in another year or two
1: okay and before we go anything final you'd like to add tony anything maybe you could give us a little clue on other interesting things you're working on right now
2: um two 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 nanometer uv uh which, which will eventually be coming around and in, into the uh in, into the industry uh just questions with regard to that but uh yeah, there's a, there's a number of things that still have to be answered with these codings and there's still a lot of work to be done. And so there, there's, there's things that are still going on right now and we'll continue on. And as I come up across things, I'll uh, give you a call, Joe, and see if we can't get back on.
1: You know, I'm also wondering real quick, how did this, um, how did your client react? Uh, Do you know if they made any changes to their processes and or their you know, the way they treat the buildings based on your review here.
2: They they actually, they did. Um, they, they took it to heart and realized where they don't need to spend as much time doing certain things. And they wanted to do, wanted to use other products in other ways. We actually excluded some products. Um, some of them because of poor care, poor um, customer service by the company. Uh, some of them because they couldn't prove that they actually worked. Um. And we had a conversation uh, uh, with one of the companies. Actually, we had a conference call with one of the companies, and they were not real happy about what I had to say about their product. And I said, "Well, just show me the money. You know, what, where's your proof? Give me, show me your proof, and I'm good with you. We'll work through that." And and they couldn't. Um, and at that point, um, you know, I got a phone call from my client after the after the conference call and said, "Thank you for thank you for basically sticking to your guns because we need to know whether it was real or not."
0: Absolutely. Are not. they using something in in um in the buildings, Tony? Or,
2: they're or using are... a num- they're using a number of different products. Good. Um there are some some ones that they have a a, a greater um a liking to than other ones mm-hmm. and then we've also looked at a couple products outside of the US cuz Canada's a little different mm-hmm. and so we have a product that, that's being used in Canada mm-hmm. and then actually another one in Australia that's uh, it's it's also a sci-quad. Mm-hmm.
1: Very interesting. Tony Havocs, thank you so much, as always, for joining us on IAQ Radio Plus. I want to thank Tony, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, put a lot of time into this one. The Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. John, you got to have faith at the controls, our excellent sponsors. Thank you so much for being sponsors and allowing us to continue to do the show. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We will be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. I think that's the Ralph Moon Show, by the way, on ATP, an excellent show. You don't want to miss that one.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed. saying thanks for listening.